0: Hello, and welcome to Amplify Archaeology. In the fourth episode of our five-part mini-series on Newgrange and the Winter Solstice, I had the opportunity to talk to Dr. Robert Henzey, author of the superb book, First Light, The Origins of Newgrange. We have a wide-ranging discussion about meaning, megalithic art light and darkness and all, all manner of things due to covid this recording had to take place over zoom so i do apologize if the audio quality is a little bit off in places i just hope you bear with us Hi Robert, thanks a million for joining us. Um, can you remember the first time you visited New Grange? Obviously, you've been there an awful lot now <laughs> over the years, but can you remember what that first experience was like? What what were your first impressions of the monument?
1: I can. I my first time I went to New Grange was wasn't actually as a child. You talked to a lot of kids, particularly that live in Mead or kind of areas close to that, and they would have visited on a school trip. But that wasn't the case for me and actually i sort of came to archaeology a little bit late in life so i was studying in maynooth and uh studying anthropology and kind of related subjects history philosophy and so on and i went out with some friends on a sort of trip to Newgrange, and it was an interesting experience you know um you know i was kind of thinking back on it there before this interview and i was going you know i wasn't really sort of blown away as such by the site in a way that some people describe but I was more kind of tickled by it, if you like. Somehow a little question wormed its way into my system right. and, you know, and sort of stayed with me. And I think questions are very powerful things and they're they're very powerful in archaeology. So I suppose when I thought about it, somehow, and I think we get this when we go to archaeological sites, they sort of puncture or rupture in a small way, our prevailing view of reality or of the past. And that's, I think, in hindsight, what I can say happened with me when I went to Newgrange. You know, I'd grown up in, as a child, 1970s, 1980s Ireland. You know, um, certainly there were instances where the community came together for work. You know, everyone would be enlisted when hay was being brought into a barn or whatever, um, or when turf was being brought in. But there was no way in the world I could imagine my community in what was then rural County Kildare, building something like Newgrange. Mm -hmm. It just would have been inconceivable. Um, So there was something about that left a really marked impression on me. You know, perhaps it was that, you know, the past isn't sort of slow incremental uh, progress you know that there was points on the history of this island where truly exceptional things happened where the people uh, of this island did things that were remarkable not just on a, a regional level or a national level but actually on the world stage um and you know i certainly wouldn't have been able to articulate that that then neil you know but um uh You know, in in hindsight, that's what it was. And, you know, I did other things. I did other work, did other jobs, did other study. Um, But, you know, the question kind of grew inside me and, uh, you know, eventually I came back to it and it became a real mission uh, to try and
0: answer that. It's a site, Newgrange, that has had a lot of study in comparison to to many others. And the Boyne Valley in particular, I think, is kind of, it draws the gaze of archeologists colossus. You know, it is so spectacular. Um, so it has i suppose been looked up from different aspects and and especially in recent years as well there's been a you know even in the last kind of four or five years, it seems like our knowledge of the site is accelerating ever more. when you think about new grains today, what is it that you're actually thinking about? Is it the overall narrative of the construction of the site are you thinking about the people who built it and their beliefs so what is it that kind of occurs to you when you instantly think
1: about it well there's a couple of points there I mean one of the first things that I pick up on is that point that you're saying of how much things have changed in the last three or four years And mm-hmm. um, one of the curious things I often think about as a researcher is that you know literally every second or every minute the past is getting further away from us mm-hmm. but from the point of view of uh, a researcher you're all the time accumulating more knowledge um, and in fact there's new discoveries you know uh, remnants of monuments that once existed in the boyne valley which you know particularly in the last few years are being discovered uh, even new uh, you know passage tombs which were unknown before um, so from the point of view of a researcher it's a curious experience that the past is actually approaching us
0: mm-hmm. it's
1: interesting and um so time is a very tricky thing and um and that that experience of information coming towards you it, it's a it's a it's a puzzling kind of phenomena isn't it you know yeah. i often think that you know we stand out under uh, stars at night and it's it's the light of extinct stars um you know striking us uh, as we stand out in open areas um so you know my impressions of New Grange. It's changed a lot over the years. I, I mean, I'd say when I first began, um, I bought in to what the communities that built New Grange wanted to present. And in recent years, through the study of art, through the study of the structure itself, uh, the roof box. Through the study, particularly of associated passage tombs all over Ireland, I now see Newgrange completely differently. Um, I see it as a a pulling together of ideas, artifacts, older histories. I see it almost as a museum of itself. Um, So in a sense, the sort of curtain has been pulled back a little bit for me. Um, I don't know if you if you've looked into buildings archaeology at all. I, I mean, one of the things I've been most impressed with in the last few years is the work by Florian Cusso uh, in France, and he's looked incredibly closely using buildings archaeology and applied it to megalithic structures like Gavarnie, and uh, so closely that every stone is accounted for, and he can see, oh, you know, they're using a different stone here. There's a change. There's a different time period, and able to uh, almost like, um, you know, you know, collecting debitage and stone tools and kind of refitting. He's got that sense of the whole structure and how it was put together in its various phases. So I kind of feel a little bit like, you know, I've more of that kind of sense about New Grange now um, mm. that I can see a little bit more behind the curtain and you know what they were trying to do, and they did it so extraordinarily well that the impression that they wanted to convey uh, worked effectively uh, and for most of us we were struck by this monument that appears to have dropped out of the blue this wondrous, um, unique um, structure
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, as, as can be found nowhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the more I look at it now, the more I see it as, as a history of the tradition.
0: And it's really interesting to think of it that way. I mean, it does come at the end of the tradition as well, isn't it? It kind of, it it marks. I suppose it had, you know, there's kind of two aspects to that later phase as well, isn't there? There's kind of the final flourish of new Grange, if you like. But then it had quite a long life afterwards. I mean, you know, when I was talking with uh, Jessica Smith on an earlier episode of the podcast of, Um, we were discussing passage tunes and and she had the analogy of them like cathedrals you know that they're there for centuries in a sense and you would never say it's not like it's built and then it's finished it's you know the behavior of people going in there and 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 everything else continues why is it that you felt uh, you feel that when they were trying to do those last, I'm not articulating this particularly well, but when they were doing the last phases of the architectural changes, let's say to the site, why do you think that they stopped doing those architectural phases to the actual main monument? Did they just change the perspective and and go outside of it completely and decide to start doing something else? It's the discipline I suppose I'm trying to get out of the people who didn't want to modify it significantly after the, the last phase
1: yeah i don't know i mean i i, I suppose I, I i would uh tend to agree with you know uh, uh jessica's position that you know all these sites have long biographies and it's, and it's very difficult with Newgrange actually to talk about last phase or first phase uh, in fact my experience with uh the passage tomb tradition generally is that all of these monuments are in motion, mm-hmm. and they're continually changing. Uh, you know sometimes it may be you know clearly structural. other times it could be the activity of people going to the sites and, and how they react to them, how they use them. and um, but right up to the present day, um, you know um, we can all think of lots of examples of of you know sites that are Sort of still being used, or groups that still come to these places, and so on. Yeah. Um, so, just as you, I, I find that question difficult. I find it very hard to pin pin down a start point or or an end point. Yeah. It, as I said, when I look at Newgrange, I think of the generations before. I think of the trial and error process gone into the monuments. I think of those extraordinary uh, grooves cut into the upper part of the capstones above the the passage and that uh, they allowed you know the archaeologists that were working with O'Kelly and O'Kelly himself were just stunned by these grooves. and I stood above the passage I got uh, access uh, to that and they're so large you could get a quite a sizable grapefruit and roll it down uh, some of those groups they're incredibly deep and they were designed O'Kelly believed to draw water away from the monument Mm -hmm. from the Uh, so it was it's not coming down into the passage um so somebody just doesn't do that you know randomly Uh, that's testament to probably generations of experience of how these monuments worked what are the weaknesses in the structures how they fail um you know so they they were constantly revisiting these monuments even underneath Newgrange itself there's this large turf mound which is we know very little about Uh, you know the latest you know work suggests it's larger than we thought maybe up to about 50 meters it would make it one of the largest monuments of this tradition whatever is inside it um in the country Um, So Ugridge is a little bit like a, 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 you know, one of those Russian dolls, you know, where there's a monument inside a monument. It's got that feeling to it. Um, And do you think that kind of reflects
0: um, different... uh, Is that an evolution of the same group of people, essentially? Or do you think that there could have been... You know, I'm always very drawn. There's a particular uh, tomb up in the Dublin mountains, Seaham, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've visited. And the reason I'm always very interested in Han is what you have at uh, essentially two large passage tombs, I believe, next to each other. One, you can see the curb, and you can see the, the chamber very, very clearly. It's completely missing its curb. And right next to it, you've got this giant curb. So I was always curious about that phenomenon and what that is telling us about the people at the time was that a case that essentially a second group of people came in almost you know defaced the older group's tomb stole all of their building material to build their own one or is it for some reason the first tomb failed or it's that kind of idea of why these tombs often sit close to each other um, and and what do we really know about in terms of the the ideas that people had? So, for example, that earlier tomb that or that turf mound that might be inside Newgrange, could that have been something that they were elaborating and celebrating by adding to and building on, or was it a thing that was being subsumed almost by a new group and almost hidden in a sense? Is that kind of question?
1: It's a very difficult quen- question to answer, Neil, you know. Um, you do get a phenomenon just on that thing of two monuments beside each other. That's quite common in the passage tomb tradition, you know. And so there are kind of lines of argument around mojis and sort of uh, lineages and clans. And, you know, could, could that have been a kind of reasoning behind what was happening on a kind of societal or anthropological level? But I do think, and particularly, you know, even ourselves today, if we're very close to, uh, you know, uh, in time to something we we have more permission in a way to adjust it. Um, Whereas I think, you know, you know, things that are very far away from us, we would like to put a glass case around them and not touch them to sort of museumify the landscape a little bit. Uh, But my impression is, you know, passage tomb communities over quite a long period were very readily cannibalizing uh, monuments uh, to create other monuments. Uh, people have used the term commonly used competitive construction mm. um and you know possibly different groups at different places in the country and so on um so really, what we get when we look at the big passage room complexes like Bruna Bonia, uh Black la crewkarakeel caraamore each of them is is palimpsests and mm-hmm. um I sometimes it is you know, it's, it's, it's a little, it's a little bit, bit like seeing a snapshot of a Christmas party at 3 a.m. You know, you might see sort of 45 people there, um, but you don't know how many people were at the party. Um, you know, how many monuments there were, once were, you know. Uh, you might see evidence, you know, uh, you know plates <laughs> or glasses of, oh, you know, there were more people here. You know, there were more monuments here at one time. There were more monuments at Brunabonje. There may have been people coming and going to the parties. They're destroyed monuments we will never see evidence of. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, there may have been many more at another time. So I see Brunabonia a little bit like that. Really, we're seeing a freeze frame mm-hmm. at a point in time, and there's a whole storied history, not just in Newgrange itself, but in the whole complex, actually, uh, of changes over time.
0: That's a very interesting way of looking at it. And, and speaking of changes all the time, I suppose... The the actual gatherings during the solstice, and of course, this year, you know, it, incredibly unfortunate year in in many ways, in many respects, and you know, with COVID, the the celebration, the the gathering of people around the tomb won't be happening this year. But what when did that kind of would you know when that tradition of people gathering around for the solstice? I know O'Kelly was the first person to kind of see it again. But when did people start getting drawn back in the kind of numbers that you see in recent years for the Solstice? And what is it, do you think, that Newgrange, what is the hold that Newgrange has over us that undoubtedly there'll be thousands of people, including myself, tuning in to the the webcast of it? What do you think it is in us today that is looking back at this ancient monument and, and feels some kind of special connection with it at this time of year?
1: Yeah, again another excellent question. You know, different people will have different answers to that question for themselves. Um, As to when it started, I'd say it started, you know, firstly I'd say it started around five thousand years ago, Mm -hmm. um, that uh, more and more I feel that these were huge gathering places. particularly when you look at all the the, uh, new monuments that have been found on the floodplain uh, at Newgrange. Uh, They were designed for uh, large groups, a lot of them it looks like. Uh, They were designed for procession. They were designed for choreography, how people moved through the landscape. Um, More and more when you look at the isotope evidence from southern England, Durrington Walls, Uh, the Orkney Islands. I think these places were, you know, uh, cult centers on a very large scale. And I think people may have actually moved between these places. Uh, I think seasonal gatherings, feasting, uh, would have been hugely important. And I think often when you look at sort of, you know, for instance, if people go on websites today about, you know, New grange and these sites very often the pictures they'll see are you know a little light mist over the river the first hints of sun coming up in the background it's all very um you know peaceful and um you know uh, isolated and kind of peopleless landscapes and i think in the past the absolute opposite was the case I think they were thronged uh, with a lot of people uh, coming from all over the region, possibly you know, all over the country, and possibly from other countries also.
0: That's really interesting. It's kind of the, I suppose, in a lot of ways, they're more akin to almost what you'd see at Stonehenge in the solstice with the noise and the, you know all these different groups having their own reasons for being there perhaps as well
1: yeah probably that and probably a lot of ceremony as well and probably you know uh, alliances and and identity being kind of forged in those moments as well
0: yeah it's, it's really interesting because of course i mean if anything new grains tells us that there was a very large community at work. You know, you you can't build something of that scale and and something of that level without a large number of people. I don't think, and especially that the, the material for the for the tomb itself is sourced over quite a in geographical range. Even today, it would be difficult to source. Um, so that's a very interesting thing. And you know, I suppose one of the Uh, interesting things about the site as well, which has a lot of different meanings to a lot of different people that, you know, would be good to touch on is the art we see in the Boyne Valley. Boyne Valley has some of the most spectacular and numerous (laughs) amounts, I suppose, of megalithic art in the whole of Europe. Um, Are there any insights we can get into the people, the, the artists, if you like, in their communities through their expressions? And in what way... Would you say that the the art that we see at Bruno Boyne, in particular, with New Grange and Mouth, uh, would be different to the art that we might see elsewhere? Is this something particularly special, do you think? Or, or what kind of insights can it give us?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would see the, the art as part of the material culture, and you know, sometimes people identify the art with you know parietal walls and and so on. But the art, of course, moves across artifacts. So, you know, we'll we'll see uh, the the spirals and so on on <clears throat> on a curbstone or on an orthostat. We can find the same spirals <clears throat> in 3D form on a, uh, a bone or antler pin mm-hmm. uh, in other parts of, of Ireland. So it's, you know, it's it's an expression of this group of people. We will probably never fully understand what it means. Um, but, I, you know, I was thinking there recently, I, I, do you know about the Voyager um, probes that went into space in
0: mm-hmm.
1: the late 1970s, 1977? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> they gathered a team that was chaired by uh, Carl Sagan, who was probably one of the most well-known scientists in the world little bit like Dr. Fauci, maybe, in in, in America at the moment. Yeah. Um, but he was a real popularizer of science, had these marvelous and exciting programs. But they developed this sort of golden uh, disc uh, that would go in these Voyager probes. And the idea was, if if these probes were picked up by other civilizations out in the universe and their great journey, that they might understand something about the Earth. Mm-hmm. So in it, in analog, they put sort of, uh, you know, uh, images of the earth. They had sounds of various animals and the ocean. They had greetings in dozens and dozens of languages. Um, they had music, um, ethnic music and to blues, to you name it. And he had this, very you know, he had to make the ultimate playlist. It must have been the most difficult task in the world, you know but i suppose i see megalithic monuments and the art and the finds you know maybe not exactly analogous but uh, it's just an extraordinary thing that these communities created these vessels Mm -hmm. filled with material culture uh, and there's diverse expressions that are very difficult for us to understand in the case of voyager they had this little um a golden needle that had to go and they had to leave a set of instructions. And of course the problem was then, you know, what language do we do the instructions? in? so of course, they had to do a kind of pictorial language in the hope that people would understand it. And so maybe the art is a, you know, not quite exactly the same, but a little bit of came in, you know, that there, you, you have this expression of this tradition, which is somehow carried through space and time for 5,000 years.
0: I think that's a brilliant analogy, and it it, it reminds me very much as well of, uh, there was a wonderful book out last year uh, by Robert McFarlane called Underland. I don't know if you.
1: Uh, I remember. do, yeah. yeah.
0: Um, th- towards the end, he's talking about there's a site, I believe, in America where they're going to be dumping huge amounts of nuclear waste, and that nuclear waste is going to be highly dangerous for tens of thousands of years. Um perhaps even up to 100,000 years, probably a lot longer than we're going to be left on the planet as a species. So the same kind of thing, they had to have a debate about how do we communicate the danger of something when we don't know that these people will be speaking English, of course, or any recognisable language that's on the earth now. And How do you communicate over a chasm of time to people that mightn't be anything like you at all? even if they are people. <laughs> so I, I think that is really interesting to think about Newgrange in that way, that maybe they were looking to communicate over, I, I don't know whether they were thinking ahead in time or whether they were trying to communicate to everybody that this is. Was. Yeah,
1: I mean, one thing I would say about the, the art in Newgrange in particular is that you'll get a lot of um, sort of Heavy picking, which you you don't get to the same extent at other sites in the country, and you have an unusual, you know, possibly iconoclastic situation, where you have certain pieces of art are being removed, and I find that very fascinating. Uh, sometimes you can sort of see the ghost imprint of the art that was that was once there, you know, the faint traces of a spiral or whatever it is, and through that you can see, oh, they decided to leave that, you know, one part- particular piece of art. So they think that is valid and still of relevance. And another piece of art, they decided, no, that's no longer appropriate for this time. Mm. So that in itself, I think, is really fascinating that they were doing that. And I see it as a process of curation. I know that's a word that would be normally associated with you know, museums and modern art, but I think they were curating the art in Newgrange. And so it's a very kind of deliberate art. Mm.
0: Um,
1: and I think thats it says something about the people, it says something about the societies, it says something about changes that were happening at that period when they, this sort of last phase of Newgrange, as we know it, um,
0: was being constructed. Really interesting insight into it. And I suppose, you know, it, it is an incredibly famous and iconic site, you know, it's one of our two World Heritage sites. Uh, And and as I said earlier, it's a site that, I suppose, really draws the eye. And when people think of, you know, it's the centrepiece, I suppose, of a lot of Fulcher Island Brandon for Island, and and things like this. So it's very much a site that people think of when you think of Ireland's history and its past. For all its familiarity, what do you think the biggest misconception, popular misconception is, that people might have of New For archaeologists or the general public, even, you know, what, what do you... Okay. Yeah,
1: I think in terms of the general public, you know, it, it, it's this idea that it's that it's a one-off, and um, so in terms of the, the passage tomb tradition, you know, there's over two hundred and thirty recorded monuments, just two hundred and sixty, uh, you know, highly likely. So we have monuments like Queen Maeve's tomb in, in Sligo, which again, you know, a kind of equivalent to Newgrange, but it's never been opened. It would be classified technically as a cairn, yes, uh, not a, not as a passage tomb but every indication is that this is a passage tomb and very likely to have a passage and chamber, just like Newgrange inside it. Um, In the 1970s, O'Neulon suggested maybe 300 of these monuments, and I think that estimate is actually probably closer to the truth uh, all over the country. So when you look at all of those monuments, you can see the buildup of knowledge, you can see monuments also with other that have astronomical uh, alignments, maybe, with shorter passage, maybe less less precise. You can see other forms of art, possibly earlier forms of art. Um, you can see uh, you know, much simpler monuments. Uh, you can see the very monuments with very early dates that are not even possible to go into, that were really just like a you know, a, a cubic meter and you know, some human remains could be placed into them. But it's the same kind of finds, it's the same tradition. Um, So there seems to be this uh, incremental development over possibly 500 years building up to the construction of something like Newgrange, and as you said, of course, monuments built after Newgrange too, sometimes smaller passage tombs and so on, Um, so we can sort of chart a journey through time, and I think that's the piece that's been missing, that Newgrange is, you know, the final chapter in a kind of extraordinary story of this tradition, uh, and we now know from uh, you know other areas of science genetics as well, for instance, that uh, possibly uh, you know groups uh, uh, genealogically and genetically connected uh, over time um and associated with places like Carrakeel, Millenbay, Bay, uh, Caramore, and Newgrange. So uh, you have these extraordinary connections between these places
0: too. yeah, it's fascinating, isn't its Is that Huge arc that's often missing, as you say, isn't it? I mean, it is such a tangible site, you know. <laughs> I think uh, it, it, it's a funny one for that, you know. But when you think of these great tombs like Knocknery and uh, a Queen Manch tomb up at Knocknery, is there a part of you that's tempted to, that you'd love to see sites like that excavated? Or do you think that unless there's a really good Reason to to excavate these monuments that we should largely leave them alone as as they were tended perhaps.
1: Yeah, for me, I'm very happy to leave them alone, um, Neil. And and uh, you know, one of the reasons is you know w- when you when you study archaeology like you have and you're looking back on reports you know and writings from 200 years ago, and you see the techniques that people had available to them. You know, sometimes maybe the finds are, are no longer available. And, you know, for instance, at Caracueil, we were able to, you know, a much more um, value seemed to have been placed on unburnt bone. More information could be uh, uh, gleaned from that bone. And cremated bone seems to have been less valued. But, of course, today that bone would be very useful to us. And there's a lot of information we could gain from it. Um, but you know, so you look at all the techniques that we have today, such as, you know, DNA and various isotopic analyses and, uh, and on and on and on. So many techniques. Uh, and then you imagine, OK, in 200 years time, what techniques are going to be available? What will we have denied people yeah. um, by excavating and sort of, you know, systematically emptying all of these monuments? Uh, also, the other part of that is, you know, our museums are full all over Europe, they're stuffed to the brims. You know, you, you know, you talk about road schemes and medieval cemeteries and, you know, all of that bone being deposited, the National Museum and so on, they really don't have room for all of this stuff. And all of that material is there and can give us further answers. So you would have to have a very, very strong question to justify excavating a site like Queen Maeve's tomb um and um you know really have a strong feeling that there is you know important answers and uh, that we can we we have a very good chance of answering otherwise they really should be left alone
0: yeah i think i think that's very true and especially when you consider the the wealth of information as you say that you can get from past archives i mean the caraciel project that we discussed on an earlier episode i think being a... a classic example of the huge amount of information that can come from delving back into what has already been done rather than opening up a new tomb and, and looking afresh at it. Absolutely. So finally, Robert, I suppose one of the things that I, I really like about Newgrange and the, my local site, if you like, as well, uh, Knock, uh, Knock Row uh, Tomb, which also has a, the same solstice alignment in midwinter it feels like a very natural ending of the year you know and i think that with 2020 i think we're all going to be happy to see that year (laughs) kind of go into the past but why do you think that they were so uh, why do you think they built this amazing structure to focus the light at this particular point what do you think it's all about
1: I mean, light, I think, is a very interesting symbol in itself. And, you know, while a lot of the time, you know, archaeologically or archaeoastr- archaeoastronomy, people are looking at the technicalities of light. Was it aligned? Was it not aligned? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's been very little focus on uh, the observation of light. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, you, you one way of looking at Newgrange is that it was uh, the monument was a way of capturing light that otherwise would have been passing across the landscape. And it allows a very peculiar situation where you can sit and actually observe that light. You can study it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and in that case, you know, the human body is, is the instrument of study. It must have been a fascinating thing, this, this great orb in the sky that controlled all our lives, that you know, plants, fertility, life, you know, more and more people dying in the winter, of course. Um, and to be able to at close quarters to be right up close to uh, you know a messenger, a representative of that light, um I was remembering there recently um there was a movie called Jesus of Nazareth when I saw when I was a kid. I think it was made in late seventies nineteen seventy seven around that kind of time, and they needed to depict um, the incarnation and uh mary becoming pregnant and of course this must be very difficult to um you know in a cinematic sense so what they did was and if you, you can see the the movie still on youtube they had a beam of light um incredibly similar to Newgrange, actually coming in through the window of this sort of mud hut, uh, through a kind of upper story window and angling beaming down towards mary and this is how they represented it and of course if you look ethnographically to some native american tribes other uh, people you'll see other instances where they talk about you know light becomes a symbol of uh, something divine coming into the world uh, incarnation a powerful presence among us uh, and i think we need to talk about newgrange more in that kind of context and the alignment in more of that kind of context
0: that's really and it's I think a great note to, to end on. I want to thank you Robert, it's always a pleasure talking to you you always give me loads to think about So that's all for this episode I'd like to thank Robert for his time and his fantastic insights and remember Robert himself was on Amplify Archaeology earlier back in episode 7 for a fascinating discussion on the remarkable project at carrakeel in Sligo so do be sure to check that out. You can also find more information and the show notes on our episode page on abartaheritage.ie. Do check out the previous episodes in this mini-series and stay tuned for the final part to hear more about Newgrange, the Solstice and Neolithic (music) Ireland.